everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the host of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, as always, is the man who played Len Dunkel in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Stephen Tobolowski. Thanks for joining me today, as always. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thank you. You know, what a perfect, you don't know this because you don't know what this story is I'm about to do, but Lynn Dunkel is absolutely perfect for what my podcast is today because my podcast is about working on different shows and what the rehearsal process is. And that, of course, was on Curb Your Enthusiasm where you have no rehearsal process. There is no script. In fact, Larry, David, when you walk through, do a camera blocking before you shoot, he doesn't even allow you to speak. He doesn't want you to practice any lines you may say. He, he wants you to go blah, 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 blah. And the only time you talk is when they say action. Very and interesting. And then who knows what comes out of your mouth. So, uh, Stephen, what is today's story going to be about then? Well, believe it or not, David, is, you know, I teach, I teach improvisation and I teach comedy and I, and always when I go to different places, people ask me acting questions and, and I get one question all the time and they ask me, what is the difference between acting in theater and acting in movies and television? I swear I get it all the time. It's the number one question on the, uh, iTunes hit list, and it's one of those questions whose answer seems apparent, right? I mean, theater's live, and movies and television aren't. In movies, theoretically, you have unlimited tries of getting one scene right, and in theater, you got one shot every night and twice on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Enough said. But I thought about it some, and I realized another aspect of the difference in acting is the difference in rehearsals. Theater has something called a rehearsal period, and if it, it can often go on longer than the run of the entire play, especially in high school. Uh, my friend Julie Haggerty had been involved with a workshop production in New York of Heinrich Ibsen's play Rosmersholm that has literally been rehearsing for over 10 years. In fact, they may have to recast some of the younger roles in the show now because those people are middle-aged. I used to think that film and television didn't rehearse as much as theater because they didn't have the time or the money or the interest. And I'll admit it, I had a theater actor's prejudice. And now, David, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell the world I was wrong. I think the goal of rehearsal in film and television serves a completely different purpose than in theater. In theater, it is the actor telling the story it is the actor who must learn the lines and the movements and the timing to create reality. In film, it's the technical people who are telling the story. They create the reality using actors as just one element. And here's an extreme example is the movie Gladiator. As I understand it, Oliver Reed died during the filming of the movie and they had to CGI his face into a shot to finish the film. The wow factor of theater is seamlessness. The wow factor of film is surprise. And to that end, I think film directors focus their rehearsals on the technical end of things so they can accurately record the sound of surprise. If an actor rehearses too much for a film, 
if they get too comfortable, it may actually be counterproductive to a good film performance. And I'm thinking now of an exception, a movie I did that actually proves the rule. In Single White Female, we did have a rehearsal period. We rehearsed for over a month. That's rare. And we rehearsed in sequence, which is even rarer. We got to a scene near the end of the movie where I have to try to rape Bridget Fonda, and Bridget repels my advances by kicking me in the crotch. Now, you would think, going into it, that this is exactly the type of scene that you would want to spend a few days rehearsing if you were doing a play. I mean, how do I grab Bridget? What do I do to her to look like an authentic rapist without looking silly or getting sued? How does she get out of my grasp? And how do we safely negotiate her kneeing me in the nuts? Our director, Barbe Schroeder, curiously stopped rehearsal at this point and said we would practice the rape and the kneeing in the groin later on with a fight expert. And then Barbe told me privately not to worry about the knee and the nuts, that it would all be perfectly safe and beautifully choreographed. At this point, I wasn't thinking Swan Lake. I was just hoping to remain a baritone. We started principal photography, and we never rehearsed after that. There was no fight choreography. There was no Swan Lake we shot for the next two and a half months, and on the day Bridget and I were going to shoot the rape scene, I went to my trailer and found a paper bag there on my dresser. I picked it up, and inside the bag was a hard protective athletic cup with a picture of a hockey player on it. The fight expert stuck his head in the door and said, Oh, good, you found it. You just slide that puppy into your jockey shorts, cover up your jollies, and we'll tell Bridget not to wail on you. <laughs> Don't worry, man. Everything should be okay. And that was it. That was the extent of the fight choreography. That was Swan Lake. Bridget and I were going to have to wing it. The safety net would be a hockey cup and my wife, Anne, who came to the set that day, and she had a bit of girl talk with Bridget before we started shooting the scene, explaining she wanted me returned home in the same condition afterwards as I was beforehand. Bridget smiled and nodded. We started to shoot the rape section of the scene, and Bridget came up to me and whispered, Stephen, it would really help me out if you could put your hand under my blouse and pinch my nipple hard. That really gets me angry. You know, they just don't teach things like this at the universities anymore. But being a method actor, I assured Bridget I could deliver the necessary pinch. Of course, I was not sure how angry I wanted her to get with the knee and the nuts part of the scene coming right around the corner. We shot for three hours. Over 30 takes of nipple twisting and nut kneeing, and Bridget, with almost ninja-like skill, came full force into my lower 48 with her knee and always stopped one half inch from disaster. I have worked with hundreds of actresses in my career, but the two best technical actresses, without question, were Meryl Streep and Bridget Fonda. I would trust them with my life or with the lives of my future children. Now, I have to admit at the time, I thought the lack of rehearsal of the rape and the fight was careless until I recognized years later that Barbet wanted to preserve the surprise. Because a movie is pieced together months after the filming and editing and sound editing, special effects and scoring stages, a movie can die unless the performances carry a certain spontaneity that'll jump out and grab the audience. Ridley Scott 
in Thelma and Louise was a great general for actors. Before the scene, we would all have a meeting, and we would decide what we were going to do. I played Max, the head of the FBI team in charge of tracking down Thelma and Louise. My first scene in the movie, I come into Thelma's house with all my team, and Ridley said, I think you should come in and take over the room. And I said, great. Of course, I had no idea what it meant to come into a room and take it over. So I did what a lot of actors do. I copied things I had seen in Law & Order reruns. During camera rehearsal, I came in quickly. I ordered each one of my men to do certain tasks using their last names. That's very cop-like. Things like, Morgan, you put a tap on line one. Johnson, I want you to put a T1 line and set it up to base. All sorts of butch things like that. Ridley nodded and said, fine, shall we shoot one? We all said, sure. I went outside the front door. I got ready to make my entrance when suddenly the spirit of surprise started whispering in my ear. It said, Stephen, that rehearsal was terrible. It was derivative. It was phony. By the way, I should mention now that myself is very hard on me. I continued, when you direct a play, you don't walk in and say, all right, Carol, you go design the costumes. John Lee, you make up the sets. Pat, learn your lines. Let's do this play. You assume everybody knows their job. On the set now, I could hear the AD calling places and telling the cameras to roll, but I continue talking to myself outside the door. What do you care about when you run things? Come on, man. I need an answer. Fast. And I answered myself, okay, okay, uh, snacks. I care about snacks. And they yelled, action, and I entered. I walked briskly into the room. I looked around and ad-libbed, people, attention. The room got very quiet. Everyone looked at me. I'm going on a deli run. Who wants turkey? Morgan. You want roast beef again? Coleslaw? The other actors looked perplexed. I continued. I'm going with the turkey, rye, and Swiss. Anyone else? They were surprised. Then, miraculously, they all started giving me food orders. Ridley called cut. He ran up from behind the camera ecstatic. I love it! I love it! From then on, Ridley wanted me eating different food in every scene. A dramatic narrative was formed by the gods of surprise, and it christened Ridley and myself and my character Max all at the same moment. If we had rehearsed this scene like you rehearse a play, it never would have happened. I should warn young actors that Ridley Scott is one of the great directors working today, and many other directors would not have liked the food bit, and I may have gotten fired or just told to come in and do more of the Law & Order stuff. But I have found that the greater the director, the greater the likelihood is that they enjoy being surprised. Sometimes... Rehearsal on a film is a dangerous waste of time. Uh, I was brought in for a one-day part on the film National Security starring Martin Lawrence and Steve Zahn. I was playing a machine shop guy delivering some crucial story points about the metallic composition of a beer keg. Hey, that was the script. Our set was an actual location. It was a blast furnace machine shop at a part of L.A. that was so scary, so nasty, that I petitioned to have the place banned from Google Earth, just in the public interest. There was nothing in this shop that couldn't kill you or maim you in less than a minute. It could have been the most dangerous place on Earth. The foreman of the shop was our safety monitor, and he told us, stay away from that furnace. It heats up to 6,000 degrees. I'm thinking 6,000 degrees. 
Isn't that like the surface of Mercury? And then he pointed to another red-hot oven, and he told us, if a shard comes out of this oven and lands on your shoe, it'll melt your foot. Don't open this door. The light in that room is so bright in there, it'll burn your retinas. Don't walk in that part of the shop. The fumes will eat out your lungs in 30 seconds. And this is, of course, the location they picked for an action comedy. I was advised that Martin Lawrence was traveling with his assistants, who were also working as his personal bodyguards. The AD called rehearsal, the first part of the scene. The director called action, and Steve and Martin entered the shop, followed by Martin's posse, which were four guys with long sports jerseys, baggy jeans, and gold chains. I suddenly felt like I was in an MTV video. We started the dialogue, but strangely, instead of just watching the scene, Martin's posse started walking toward me. I kept acting, and I got to the point where I extend my arm to put it around Martin when suddenly his bodyguards reached into the waistband of their pants, pulled out guns, and aimed them at me. I froze. Martin, to his credit, yelled out, Guys, chill. It's cool. We're just rehearsing. This is part of the movie. I was still frozen. I said, Yeah, guys? Guys, let's just chill. We're acting here. This, this is just acting. And the guys put their weapons back in their pants. The director said, shall we continue? Martin, again to his credit, said, why don't we just shoot one? I agreed. If someone's going to bust a cap on your ass, it might as well be for the take and not just for a rehearsal. The one time on a film I can guarantee you will rehearse is if you go over the details of a highly technical or a dangerous scene. In the movie DMZ, I played a sergeant on my last day of duty on the border between North and South Korea. In the scene we were shooting, a group of North Korean peasants were supposed to run for their freedom through the DMZ while being shot at and blasted by soldiers of the North. We rehearsed this scene for hours for two reasons. One... We were using real Korean immigrants as extras for authenticity, and two, real explosives were being used. Dynamite was planted in the ground, and the Korean extras were going to have to run a very specific route to get to freedom, a.k.a. the camera, to avoid getting blown to bits. We had Korean translators working with the special effects people, showing exactly where the charges were buried, marking the charges with tiny patches of white powder so they could be seen. And that was followed by a slow walk by all of the extras along the path they had to travel to avoid stepping on the dynamite. Everything went smoothly until the director yelled action, at which point, the Koreans started screaming for their lives and running at full speed through the dynamite pass where they were blown to smithereens by our crack special effects team. There were bodies flying everywhere, and we got great footage. Mercifully, no one was killed. Hospitalized, yes, but not killed. I sometimes imagine the dangers those extras faced in real life in coming to America from Korea only to be blown up in America shooting a movie about getting out of Korea to come to America. It hurts my brain to think about it. It was the wow factor of surprise. Sometimes you land on your feet, sometimes you don't.
If we operate on the assumption that the goal of a filmed endeavor is to preserve surprise, there would appear to be method in the definite madness in working with David Milch. I have had the privilege of working with David in various capacities on four projects, from L.A. Law to John in Cincinnati. But I think David's most amazing achievement to date is the series Deadwood. It was television, but it's misleading to call it a television program. It would be like calling the rings of Saturn space dust. The scope of Deadwood was beyond television in any number of categories. Size, cost, scope, quality, profanity, you name it, Deadwood broke the mold. It may be an apocryphal story, but the way it was told to me on the set was that David wanted to shoot a series about the beginnings of civilization at the time of the Roman Empire. He wanted the drama to be performed by actors in Latin with subtitles. And it would feature the unimaginable violence of the age coming in conflict with the inexorable forces of the future. And he went to HBO and he pitched it and they listened and said, well, David, what we're really looking for is a Western. And David said, oh, well, it's the same thing. And Deadwood was born. Instead of actors speaking Latin, he had characters speaking in streams of profanity or in backward Shakespeare, like my character Hugo Jari. Now, I ask you to give some serious consideration to the word fuck. The word has over 135 meanings in the dictionary. It's one of the few words in the English language that can be used as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an exclamation, and an interjection. In other words, it can mean just about anything and nothing. David Milch created a foreign language in a way. Regular viewers of the show told me they had to record each episode to listen to them over and over again to decipher what was happening. The haiku of this was in the infamous cocksucker scene. Now, if you've seen it, you can't forget it. And if you haven't seen it, you need to rent the DVD just to see it. In the scene, a Chinese worker is trying to warn his boss of a dangerous man arriving at a train station. But the only English word he knows is cocksucker which is horrible and hilarious in its own right. But the levels of emotion and torment and danger and frustration in the scene are a perfect statement of the foreign language film David wanted to create. Physically, the show is gigantic. The shooting schedule, going back in time, let's say a one-hour television program in the 90s, a top show, 30-something. One of those shows, their schedule could balloon to about 14 days, which was huge. Later in the decade, with the influx of inexpensive Canadian productions, the shooting time was cut to six days. That's about 10 pages a day, which is brutal. And I've worked on feature films that were shot in 21 to 28 days. The final episode of Deadwood in season two took 30 days to film. Deadwood often worked with two full-time crews, two cinematographers, two directors, with David Milch overseeing everything. And they were always the top-of-the-line people. One of our camera crews was the team that Alan Parker used on Mississippi Burning. A typical day at Deadwood. You would arrive at 5 a.m. and get breakfast. Rehearsal would begin with the director of this current episode and David Milch in the dark. You see, David liked to shoot in natural light as much as possible, so he wanted everything to be ready to go by sunrise. We would rehearse, get up to speed, and then David would toss something in like, oh, and we should have a cattle stampede going down Main Street in the middle of the scene. Once in season three, 
uh, I was rehearsing. We were wrapping up when David left rehearsal saying, great, great. So Stephen, when we shoot it, I want you to do it like a bird. I said, beg your pardon? David said, yeah, do what you're doing, but do it like a bird, you know, with wings and feathers and a beak. Just see what happens. Try to fly, something like that. I said, okay. Once Tim Oliphant, as Sheriff Bullock, was taking me to jail for protective custody, and after watching rehearsal, David felt the street was too empty. So he added a huge yoked bull to walk in front of me. During the take, the bull lifted his tail and took an enormous dump on me. Tim and I kept going, even though now I squished when I walked. When they yelled cut, Tim started busting a gut laughing while I was complaining to David that I got crapped on during the shot. David was thrilled. He said, you can't plan things like this. That was great. It was the best part of the scene. And he almost did it on cue. That's a print. As I started slogging my way back to the trailer, David yelled, and remember, we don't wash our costumes on Deadwood, which was true. David wanted the stains to match from week to week, so the bull gave me a gift that kept on giving for the rest of the season. At the end of two or three months, my clothes could walk on their own. More than once, after rehearsal, David would rush off to rewrite a scene, and actors would sit in their trailer for hours just to be told that there was a change of plan, that David hadn't finished rewriting, so we'll shoot tomorrow's scene today and today's scene next week. Or you could get a phone call from an AD at 11 o'clock at night with the news that you've just been added to a scene that shoots first up at dawn, tomorrow. Pages were being sent in an email. You'd run to your computer and you would find you have six pages of backward Shakespeare, complete with incomprehensible monologues to learn. And you didn't know whether if you should stay up all night trying to learn the speeches and be toast in the morning, knowing that they may just simply rewrite them anyway. Once I got one of these midnight calls and I saw what I had to learn, I actually started to cry. It was arcane and incomprehensible, and yet I didn't want to say no. I called the AD back, and I offered him $100 if he could change the call sheet and let me come in a little later. He said, sorry, man. David says, you're up first. It could have been David's way of injecting surprise into the process, or it could have been that he was just nutty in a brilliant way or brilliant in a nutty way. The jury is still out. Whatever it was... It was certainly the poetry of chaos. Another way surprise was injected into the process was using weather. We never stopped doing what we were doing because of burning heat or torrential rains. I had one scene where I had to walk down the main street and enter the Bella Union bar to meet Powers Booth, who was playing Tolliver, for a bit of scheming and betrayal. And the camera started out with me outside in the street and came in through the swinging doors. The rain outside was biblical, several inches that day. The mud was over a foot deep in the streets. And on one take, there was a horse in the background that had had enough of being out in the weather. And he made a dash for the bar as well and came through the swinging bar doors right behind me. Talk about the sound of surprise. The look on Power's face when that horse came in was priceless. It was a combination of shock plus the absolute calm in case the horse walking up to the bar was the last second addition by David. One day, David asked me how I felt about nudity. I told him, hey, I do it every day, briefly. 
He said he wanted to write a scene where I was to have sex in a bathtub with a prostitute at the Bell Union. And I said, why not? I had only, in real life, tried sex in a bathtub once, and it is not to be recommended just for the sheer mop-up factor afterwards. But hey, this was fiction. Powers had used his clout to get his daughter Parise onto the show in the part of a prostitute that worked for him at the saloon. Yeah, it's another one of those heartwarming father-daughter stories in Hollywood. Parise was chosen by David to be the lucky girl with me in the tub. Now, the irony of the story is that Powers and I went to school together at SMU some 30-odd years ago. And back in the old days, I had spent some wonderful evenings with Powers and his wife Pam and their new baby Paris. And one evening, after Powers had passed out, I was talking to Pam about horses and stained glass windows, and Pam got up to get a couple more beers and asked me if I would please diaper Paris for her, who was a few months old at the time. So in an unlikely turn of events... I was about to have simulated sex in a bathtub with a woman I had actually diapered in my past. For those who believe in a universe of probability, the odds of this one has to make your head swim. Paris was very nervous, and I tried to calm her down. I told her to just pretend I was one of her dad's old school chums who had gotten drunk at a hot tub party and was putting the moves on her. That didn't work. But she was great in the scene, and in the end, a good time was had by all. I need to say that the difficulties of Deadwood cannot be understated. I was supposed to ride into town on horseback for the first episode of season three, and I came in a day ahead of time to pick out a horse I liked to practice some, and the head wrangler asked me if I knew how to ride. And I said, well, that depends. I don't know if I can ride on a horse with guns going off or with runaway wagons going in the opposite directions or barking dogs or hundreds of extras in the street or any of the other dozens of things David may decide to throw in there at the last second. And the wrangler smiled and said, okay, okay, son, I know you can ride. Actors who can't ride just say, sure, I could ride. The day of the shoot, it was over 100 degrees. There were over 200 extras, wagons, children, other horses. My horse was calm and doing fine. Then all of a sudden, he goes nuts. He starts rearing, turning around in circles. Everything stopped while we tried to get my horse settled down. Apparently, the set decorators had strung up the carcass of a dead, bleeding deer on the street. And my horse did not like the way herd animals were being treated. We got rid of the deer, we started to shoot again, when at the other end of the street there was another bit of commotion. Apparently, one of the extras had dropped dead. They called for an ambulance, and we waited till they got there. Uh, a man was put onto a stretcher, taken away, and the first assistant director began to make an inspirational speech. Went something like this. Everybody? Everybody? I know we're all in shock over what happened to... Uh, and the AD turned to his assistant who whispered into his ear, Dan, 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 our old buddy Dan. And I know he didn't regain consciousness here, and that's got us all a little worried. But we all know that Dan was a real fighter. And I have no doubt he's going to fight this heart attack with everything he's got. He was just that kind of guy. The good news is the ambulance is already on the way with them to the trauma center, and that's very close, and they'll call us as soon as Dan gets there. So right now, I'd like to take 10 seconds of silence for us to pray for Dan. 
and the AD lowered his head and took about eight and a half seconds and then started speaking again. And finally, there's one thing I know Dan really loved, and that was this show. Deadwood was Dan's second home. And if there's one thing he would like right now is for us to finish this scene. So everybody, back to your places. Ready? Cameras roll. It was cold. If David didn't like the way a scene was developing in Deadwood, he would just rewrite it and reshoot it. And the money people at HBO were not thrilled with this methodology. It led to exploding budgets and eventually the premature cancellation of the show. But there was this moment in season three. I was shooting a scene with Gerald McRaney, who is belovedly referred to as Mac, on the rooftop of a building on Main Street at 2 a.m. There were no guardrails to prevent us from falling the three stories into the night. In the background on the street below, there was a procession of horsemen carrying burning torches riding through the town. And in the middle of the scene, we were hit by the sound of surprise. A screech in the air above us, and Max stopped at mid-sentence and looked up, and it was a family of white barn owls, two adults and a baby, circling above us. And then the birds suddenly swooped down through our scene, then down over the heads and the torches of the riders on the street and back up to a nest at a tree at the end of Main Street. And Mac looked back at me and raised his eyebrows as if to say, well, that was something. And we continued on, but in that insignificant moment, in that make-believe town. I felt transformed. I felt like I had left my body behind and was living in another time in another place. And all I was really experiencing was the power of poetry, coming close to a thing of beauty without falling into the blackness. It's what every actor hopes to be a part of. And thanks to David Milch, I was. That was The Sound of Surprise, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, uh, fascinating to hear about the, the making of Deadwood, a show that was indeed canceled before its time, yes? Absolutely. I think pretty much at the end of the third season. Is that right? Yeah, and um, there were, uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, there were initial plans to conclude the series with two special TV movies, but the plans have not come to fruition. And I... I- Yep. I remember when, uh, right after that, David called me up in typical David fashion and said, what are you doing this afternoon? A- and I said, uh, nothing. He says, you want to be in John and since John from Cincinnati? And, and I go, yes, sir. He says, well, I got a part for you. Come on down to San Diego now. I go, now? He goes, yeah, I need you here by 4 o'clock. 
So I got in my car and I drove down to San Diego and that's where I heard all the stories of the Deadwood movies. And we shot John from Cincinnati in San Diego and on the Deadwood stages over at the uh, Gene Autry Melody Ranch. And uh, it was eerie shooting John from Cincinnati and seeing all of the Deadwood props and costumes and stages all packed up ready for these movies which ended up not getting made. It really was sad. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, in any case, um, we wish David Milch the best things going forward. Obviously, a hugely talented uh, individual. Genius. Um, just absolute. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, Stephen Tobolowsky, how can people reach you this week if they'd like to email you? Well, I think the best way for people to reach me is by email at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And also, David, at Twitter, I'm on Twitter, I'm tweeting, uh, uh, Twitter at... Uh, Twitter.com slash Tobolowski. So, That's exactly what I was going to say. One you you of these took days, the words right out of my mouth. One of these days, you will, you will learn that exact I'm, I'm address. I'm going to write it down. <laughs> yes. You can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. You can also email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com. You can find my other podcast, slash filmcast at uh, slash filmcast.com. Of course, the slash filmcast and the Tobolowski files, uh, both hosted by SlashFilm.com. And by the way, you can also find every episode of the Tobolowski Files either on iTunes or, if not there, at TobolowskiFiles.com. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thank you guys for tuning in, and have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.